Imro Hattie coming at you from Treaty 7 Lands in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Hey, you can support this podcast if you're in Canada. You can support it as a ministry and get a charitable tax receipt. Find the details at rohattie.com or cypherchurch.com. We don't have sponsors for this. It's more of a labor of love, and I hope you have found some insightful ideas, tips, tricks, all that jazz. If you have, please rate the podcast wherever you're listening to it, and of course, share it widely. I'll try to post some more stuff on my Facebook page or social media about the um, posts, these podcasts. Then maybe you can resend it, share it, tell your mom, get your mom to tell her friends, and then we solve racism. It's basically like that. In this episode, and in the next two, so this one and one more, I'm going to chat about anti-racism, justice, and try to meander our way through an intro of the subject, and then in the second installment, chat a little bit more about the hope that is to come. The start, so part one, will be a focus on introductions and those who are entering this journey of becoming anti-racist, of doing the work of justice, of becoming alert. One of the colloquial terms that's being used right now is wokeness, to become woke to systems of injustice that are in our midst. Friends, people of color know very well because we wear it in our bodies. We've faced it day by day by day. Every moment that I step out of my house, something in the world will encounter me and tell me I'm not okay in my own skin. It's not an experience that everyone has had, but there are intersections where marginalized people are fighting for belonging, and they will face some sense of disconnection and marginalization, either by class, perhaps by gender, sexuality, the list goes on. Power, patriarchy, white supremacy are massive artifacts of our culture, and the work to dismantle them is going to take generations. I'm doing a six-part series right now with a white evangelical church who have invited me into their space, and we're trying to combine our communities for this journey right now. And one of the questions recently was centered around, what do I do and how do I know if what I'm doing is the right thing? Which is a really good question. And someone shared a response, and it was quite simply, We have spent hundreds of years getting to the problem we're at now. White supremacy and racism are 400 years old. Uh, Power systems, of course, and the powers and principalities are as old as as time. And so we need to expect that the journey and the fight that we're on to right systemic injustices are ones that will take a lifetime. I don't know how many of us have that type of patience, but we need that type of foresight to prepare us for a long journey ahead. This part one is rooted in a free resource that I wrote called On... No, that's my book coming. It's called Changing the Story, a small resource on racism in Canada and the church. So the ideas within, however, are applicable in the West, 
in North America, in the United States. But Canada has a unique way of approaching racism, anti-racism, of calling out white supremacy. It's woven within the Canadian narrative to call racism a distinctly American problem. So we do that culturally, but we've also enacted policies that intentionally shift narratives about Canada around racism. We just don't have it. You would have listened in Chad Lucas and I's podcast on Nova Scotia and the rich history of Black Nova Scotians and the reality of Black slavery in Canada. Anti-Blackness is as old as Canada, goes back further than when Canada became its own nation. These are important pieces of our history that we need to hang on to. Because when we know where we've come from, it will give us a better sense of where we want to go and what we should not repeat. Change the Story is downloadable on my website, rohadi.com. All you have to do is sign up for my monthly newsletter where I can sell you all the books that I'm not writing. It's a monthly reflection, actually. So you can download, it's about 45, 50 pages maybe, uh, six small chapters. It is a good introduction for those who are just starting this journey, who are trying to figure out what they should read, what they should uh, consume, what they should watch. I have reading lists throughout. It's basically a summary or an amalgamation of the resources that I have found and that I've found useful. My book list, which you would find on Goodreads, I have two book lists. One of them is an intro into anti-racism, and then the other one is for more advanced readers. So those who have done the work of foundations of anti-racism and diversity, you can jump into the second stage. The context is within the church and Christianity, and so I don't want to dissuade you from reading some of the books, but there are books that are heavy in theology, particularly in the advanced section. The reason why I wrote the resource was because of the massive onslaught of people looking for new resourcing as a result of the chaos that happened in May 2020. I had actually written Change the Story three years earlier. It was a six, seven, eight part series on my blog. Not that popular because why would anyone want to read about racism unless you yourself are a marginalized, racialized minority? You're probably not looking for this kind of stuff. Think about this for a moment though. Why did I write it in 2017? Think about what was happening in the world right now and to date this podcast. You know how much I hate that. But to date this podcast, it's a week before, two weeks before the American election. Three years ago, four, three, four years ago, Donald Trump was just coming into the White House. He had spent about a year in office and the emboldened voice of white supremacy and white supremacists were starting to grow. And we had the evil acts that happened in Charlottesville. Virginia was home to literal KKK enthusiasts marching in the streets with tiki torches they had bought from Home Depot. 
And that was something we were not used to. Now, we all know that white supremacy operates as the bedrock of our culture. What we're not used to, and culturally what we try to achieve, is by labeling white supremacists as bad. Anybody who is overtly racist on the outside, that's bad. So long as we can reduce racism to the actions of the individual actors, that then covers up the magnitude of white supremacy or the systems of racialized oppression. Therefore, if you are someone who benefits from the system, you can turn a blind eye. Now, we don't culturally turn a blind eye to the individual acts, burning down a synagogue, spraying a swastika, attacking somebody based on their skin color. These are things we don't tolerate. However, as we see recently what's happening in Canada and in, in the U.S., at any given moment, we can pick out tons of examples of racialized policies or racist policies to be specific. I'll jump into some of those examples in a moment here, but let's go back to 2017. Charlottesville happened and the infamous lines of there's two sides and very fine people came into our lexicon or came into popular cultural use. What we discovered as people of color is that there wasn't very much movement towards writing systemic injustice. Now, the early adopters and the racialized minorities, we've been fighting for this type of both recognition, but calls for justice for decades. It's the same struggle that we're facing now in 2020, same struggle as 2017, it's the same struggle from 50, 60 years ago during the civil rights movement. What has changed other than segregation now is illegal, but we have different ways of enacting slavery, for example. Mass incarceration accomplishes that. We still have the legacy of hundreds of years of racist policies and systemic oppression. We can see that in the neighborhoods that are rooted in poverty, and they tend to reflect a particular racialized minority within. These are all by design. And typically every city, any city of size, at least in Canada, will have some expression of this. 2017 saw the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement and a little bit of attention in mainstream culture. There was a little bit of attention from white fundamentalism that hated the very notion of justice. See, if you're new to the conversation of racism, hearing about the imbalance as a result of your race that exists in our world is jarring. If you're at the top of the mountain and you assume everyone else sees the world as you do from the top, this idea of listening to the stories of those who are lower down the mountain where they're facing oppression on a daily basis simply because of the color of their skin, that is something that either you reject and say it's not true or something that winds up hurting your worldview. It, it cracks 
your assumptions of the world that equality was something that everyone could jo- enjoy. I've had people actually leave my church over this issue because they think the talk about racism is divisive. In a sense, it is. It, it's not attempting to divide, rather, it's pointing out division, what already exists. But if you're not aware, not alert, not woke to the level of division and systemic oppression, this is all a little too much to swallow. And so what you do is probably the easiest option is you walk away, or you reject the very notion and continue living in ignorance at the top of the mountain. But as Bernadette shared in her wonderful metaphor, we're in a space right now where culture, and you can pick any subcultures as well, we talk about the church in this podcast, culture has already baked its cake. The cake tastes a certain way. We can't change the recipe And what we know is that the cake has been baked with levels of white supremacy, of patriarchy, of classism, which is connected and rooted in capitalism. Uh, These are just realities that have offered white privilege. Now, if white privilege is a word that ruffles your feathers, then perhaps shift it. Consider it minority disadvantage. Visible minorities are not permitted the same opportunities as white folks. You will note the popularity of a new movie coming out called Hillbilly Elegy. It's basically a conversation about how uh, poor whites in the Rust Belt of America, they are abjectly poor. Your chance of getting ahead in life is very small. And some people have used the book as an example to say that, look, racism isn't really a thing because, look, white people are poor too. Which is very true. Again, this is a conversation about intersections. It's to say that the bad things that happen to you or to anyone, if you are white, are real. However, there's a caveat in that the bad things have happened not as a result of your skin color. At least in terms of its connection to the systems in our world, be it legislation or policies or bylaws might be finances or banking. Uh, It might be law enforcement. 2017 came and went. Then the pandemic hit. I think the pandemic set up a lot of the possibilities that eventually emerged and the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back in May 2020 the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a number of police officers, white and Asian, set off a firestorm. This came on the heels of other deaths in America that were highly publicized during the time of Breonna Taylor, of Ahmaud Arbery, of George Floyd. Canadian RCMP, in fact, killed six and seven indigenous people. Now, Canada is a tenth of the size of America. And when we look at some of the examples of racist policies and also police violence against racialized minorities, we have a systemic problem here. It's pronounced, it's much larger as well than we might think. 
Yes, the peaceful and subdued Canadian landscape is one that harbors a nasty secret, one of white supremacy, of white privilege, and one that is also rooted in a legacy of colonization that has created the likes of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to, in the very least, adopt some cultural artifacts from history that they still play into moments today. As I speak on this podcast, there is an ongoing feud and violence in the Nova Scotia region where the Mi'kmaq people are fighting, ironically, with Acadians and white fishermen, commercial fishermen in the lobster fishery. There has been violence, there has been torching of the Mi'kmaq infrastructure, and the country is kind of sitting back aghast. Our jaws are dropping. We don't know what to do with this level of violence. Now, of course, there are the extremes. There are those who call for this type of dismantling of Mi'kmaq infrastructures, and they say that the whites have the possibilities and all of the rights to be doing the things that they're doing. Um, don't think that's a popular assertion, but is it is one. We have other examples in Canadian politics. Nova Scotia, not weeks before the Mi'kmaq controversy, um, the government itself came out, out of the middle of nowhere, almost as if it was in the middle of the night, and made an announcement about systemic racism, essentially acknowledging that it happens, it happens in the justice system, and that they need to do a better job at enacting legislation that will right some of the systemic wrongs. Now, curiously, when those in power decide they want to make a statement about minorities and marginalized people, in this case, they did so without telling anyone, just announced it, and hoped they could collect their kudos on the way out the door. In Alberta, there are examples, clear examples of policy making. And so when you call back into Ibram Kendi's book, very popular book right now, it's more of an introduction, of course, on the notion of anti-racism and how to be an anti-racist, as the name is called. His piece is any aspect of racist policy is the items or are the items that describe what racism is. Now, I think it goes deeper than that. There are systems we need to undo, not merely policies. You can hear more about that in our conversation together, Bernadette and I, podcast one and two of season three. However, because we have at least a growing interest around racialized policymaking, how about some examples? Well, in Alberta, we have examples of legislation coming in that will ban the likes of protesting on infrastructure. That is a direct retaliation to First Nations and the various nations who stand on rail lines and who could protest in solidarity or for their own protest, ironically against pipeline building. I guess that's not ironic because that is the precise reason why such a legislation would be enacted is to prevent commerce around the oil and energy sector. Not to be outdone, recently the attempts to revamp the school curriculum, it was leaked that 
the current government wants to abolish and remove teaching around residential schools. Now, if that's not a racist policy for education, I don't know what it is. Racist sayings and racism in the throne speech also emerged. Throne speeches are the summary of what a government intends to do in a session of the legislature. And in this case, the premier comes out and calls intersectionality garbage. Kooky. Only a white man could come up with such a conclusion. Again, when you're at the top of the mountain, if you view intersectionality as merely something that describes a way of making sense of the world for minorities as garbage or kookiness, you're demonstrating your inability to empathize with people who don't look like you. I think it's um, more nefarious than that. If you want to look up intersectionality, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, read a paper. It's accessible. Every marginalized person understands some level of this. It's in our bones. So for myself as a racialized minority, but as a man and also someone who can buy two bags of rice instead of one, I have a house and a car. And as a straight man, there are certain privileges that I get for my place in society, but at the same time, I'm not afforded all the privileges as a white man. So I don't know what it means to be a gendered minority because I'm a man. Women face patriarchy. I don't know what that means to be under the thumb of that power system. That's an intersection. Being a racialized minority, I don't have the same opportunities as a white man. I have to work harder, improve myself in order to have those opportunities. That's another intersection. I can go out and buy what I want at the grocery store without thinking anymore about how I'm supposed to count my pennies. That's capitalism, classism, another level. I can borrow money if I wanted to, and I don't have to borrow it at a massive interest rate. Classism again, capitalism. And then as a straight person, sexual minority, another intersection. I don't know what it means to be gay or bi. These are all intersections that merely describe our world. And that's bad? Well, it is if the notion is anything that attempts to go against the grain of inherited white supremacy or white privilege or how society has always been, it looks like a threat. And so you reject it. This is actually a call to say if anyone doesn't assimilate to dominant white culture, you're going to have a tough time fitting in. That's why new immigrants and as a first-gen, and my dad as well, as a first-gen immigrants to this country, you have to, in some level, assimilate yourself in order to simply survive. And now, a generation or two later, we see the effects of, okay, with a little bit of privilege, you can get me a loose cannon talking about all these aspects of writing systemic injustice. That's partly why I wrote the resource around anti-racism activity and did it within my expertise, which is the church. 
2020 gave an opportunity to revamp the approach, to update the materials from 2017, and to say, hey, you need to look at yourself and ask, where do you fall in the scale of racism? If I have anti-blackness in my body, because I've been formed predominantly in white culture, white people undoubtedly have significant levels of racism they need to figure out. So we need to perhaps soften soften the ideas behind racism and stop considering it. It is certainly abhorrent, but the action of those individuals I mentioned earlier. And look at in what ways, this is the introspection, we participate in systems of oppression. When it comes to anti-blackness, that's an easy one. And this is where you get the model minorities for... Racialized minorities, for Asians, for example, use my own. Racialized minorities have a level of anti-blackness in them. Racist people I know are Asian or brown, and they hate black people just because they've inherited assumptions from dominant white culture. And they will just pick up and carry on the systems that seek to oppress. That's another intersection. Colorism. Even within say, the brown community or the Asian community, the darker your skin, the worse off you are. It's a billion-dollar industry of skin-lightening creams just to adopt a perception that you're lighter than you really are. What kind of world do we live in? We need to be formed into a space that notes, believes, and champions this idea that God loves you for you. It also means that in your own skin, you have a voice, and your voice matters. Your gifts and your abilities and your traits, they matter. And part of the journey of figuring out in what manner and where you fall into the scale of racism, that's a little graph I have made available in my resource, is that we need to then do the work of figuring out how we come alongside those who are hurting. If we as Christians believe in love and that we will be known by our love for one another and the other, one expression of that love is empathy. If we can't empathize, we don't have love. And this is what happened in May 2020. There was a massive movement of white people who started to get on the train of anti-blackness, of dismantling anti-blackness. That to me is positive. I've never seen such a thing in my life. I've never seen protests and go back into the podcast with Deb Mabude and I, as we talk about protesting, we were shocked. I'm still shocked. I can't believe it. COVID had a a play in that, but I was shocked to see the amount of people. That's certainly generational, but it is indicative that change is a coming. Times are a changing to go with the Bob Dylan verse. The George Floyd murder, coupled with all the others, it raised up this push to dismantle anti-blackness and the push to become anti-racist. Now, I think the question around there is what is performative and what will last into justice? I started this podcast by sharing my experience with the church that I preached at, and I noted this type of work is work that takes a lifetime. 
Yet we lost interest immediately, 2017, from Charlottesville. That barely lasted. I have a sense that this movement now and the expansion of BLM and the press on white privilege and white supremacy specifically, the amount of white people who are doing good work. I mean, give yourself a pat on the back. You're doing good work. That counts. It does. But we need to take a step Take a step for white people to learn from white people. There's enough resource out there. You don't need to find a token to help you. It takes time to embody a response out of love. So empathy requires a level of knowing and feeling the presence of racism in your body. So perhaps that's the effects of racism, but white people have that too. Uh, Power systems that seek to dismantle and oppress others, they have a negative effect on white bodies as well. We need to stop and think about what presence of evil, the evil of racism, exists in our own bones and skin. We need to think and reflect about what privilege our skin has afforded us. If you don't have to think about that, it's because you have privilege. If you don't have to think about how everyone else sees the world, it's because you have everyone matching your gaze. Ultimately, it's the relationship aspect. That's a tough one because if you look at the work of David Emerson and other sociologists like him, white evangelicals and white conservative Christians actually have the lowest, the smallest network of people who don't look like them. That includes who vote like them and earn like them. But it is a question of race. White people do not have friends beyond their ethnicity or their race. It's the smallest amount. Racialized minorities actually have the largest ethnic uh, mix of friends, and that's good. It's also a challenge because significant relationship is going to be the critical factor that dismantles systems of oppression. When you stand to lose as a white person, if justice prevails, then you better have some relationships along the way that are going to help push you through Now, not to say that it's up to us minorities to help push you through your own work, but you don't really see the needs or the values or the necessity to dismantle systems of oppression unless you have a significant relationship with someone who's different. Unfortunately, in our churches, our formation is rooted in sameness. We hang out with people who all look the same, think the same, act the same, as I noted, vote and earn the same. It's tough. I don't really think that's an exploration or an expression of what it means to be part of Christ-like community. In my six-chapter resource, I do offer some sense of definitions for some of these terms, if they're brand new to you and if you've stuck around in this podcast this long. Um, Some of these pieces and some of the words that I use might be jarring, as I noted. Just do some work and figure out what is going to, A, work for you, but also encounter you in the space that you're at. If you're starting the journey, find the resources that match that. Be aware of common misconceptions. Uh, Don't have the ruffled feathers when you hear words such as privilege or fragility. And most importantly, be alert that the problems we're facing now, I'll use the church, these problems are not new. I alluded to that earlier. 
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was calling on the church, was calling on moderate whites to stand up, the church to stop acting as a club and to act as the muse or the critique to culture. He was calling out segregation. The level of segregation now, racialized segregation in churches today in the present, is on par to pre-civil rights movement in the 60s. Isn't that something? I mean, that's so terrible. When you look around the pews on a Sunday morning or today, if you look around on the screen on online service, what does everyone look like you? The hope for the church, I believe, is one that stretches into all nations, or the word we can use today is ethnicity. It's that picture we have of the end in Revelation 7, where every tribe, tongue, and nation bow before the throne. We don't have pictures of that in real time, do we? So really, this is a press onto white churches and white church communities. I hear you, I see you, those who are doing some work in this area. Continue doing that work. As one of the tweets in a line out of my book, Thrive, what would happen if Mother Teresa thought that caring for the poor was just a monthly outreach event? What would happen? What would happen if we treated the work of anti-racism, which is really the work towards justice, as a once a month or just a little time period here during COVID for something to busy ourselves around? What then? Will we achieve what we have set out to do, to right the wrongs in our midst, to become the repairers and the restorers of the streets in which we dwell? Or will we be the church or the community with our vain religion, singing our songs, clanging our cymbals, all while ignoring the plight of those who've been oppressed, the widows, the orphans, the marginalized. Every prophetic book in the Old Testament is very clear, and the story of Jesus as well is that God literally does not hear your prayers or your worship if you have no say in the work of justice. Maybe shall I just leave off there? We need to do something, and we need to be aware that that's going to be a slow process. A slow process, which means a lifelong process of learning, unlearning, and coming on alongside one another in empathy. So we, we may be known, pardon me, by our love. Our love for one another and our love for the other. Mm-hmm.